Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut's Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, now chair of the powerful House Appropriations Committee, has been a longtime champion of ending the gender pay gap in our country. Just last month, the House passed legislation to reduce gender-based pay discrimination and increase employer accountability. Questions over gender wage gaps and salary transparency have been heightened over the last year as the country continues to talk about what equity means. These conversations are also happening in public media. Coming up, we'll talk about it with Tyler Falk, a reporter for Current, an independent publication that covers the public media industry. First, joining me on Zoom is Maya Ragu, Director of Workplace Equality and Senior Counsel at the National Women's Law Center. Maya, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. Also here with us on Zoom, Madeline Granado, who is Policy Director at the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. Uh, Madeline, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Our listeners can also join 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Maya, I wanted to start with you. I know Mother's Day is coming up on Sunday, but yesterday was actually Mom's Equal Pay Day. I, didn't, I had no idea. Tell us about this day and what it means. Sure. Mom's Equal Pay Day is a date we use to observe how long into this year that moms have to work in order to catch up to what fathers were paid in the previous year. So that's more than four extra months into this year. Um, What that means is that mothers are typically paid less than fathers, even for doing the same job and within the same occupations. And while a 75 cent on the dollar sort of wage gap, may, like that 15 cent gap may not seem like a lot to a lot of people, it actually translates to a loss of more than $15,000 a year, which over the course of a lifetime is several hundred thousand dollars. And that's significant because Women are increasingly not only their primary breadwinners, but caregivers in families. So families are depending on their income. And that means going into this pandemic, women who are supporting their families were already at a disadvantage. And we know that over this last year, the economic impacts of the pandemic have fallen particularly heavily on women and women of color. Um, So this is an issue not only of fairness, but of economic security and survival for women and families in this country. So we're learning about Mom's Equal Pay Day, but when we talk about uh, generally the pay gap, how this translates uh, year after year, Maya, for not only women, but people of color. That's right. So when we look at the wage gap overall for women compared to men, women are typically paid 82 cents for every dollar paid to men. That's for people working 
full-time year-round, and that's based on data from the Census Bureau. But as you pointed out, the wage gap is actually much worse for many women of color. So for black women, it's 63 cents on the dollar compared to white non-Hispanic men. For Latinas, it's 55 cents on the dollar. That translates over the course of a 40-year career to a loss of over a million dollars. That's life-changing money. And in the context of this past year, that's money that is critical to the survival of many women and families. When we talk about the the pay gap or the wage gap, Maya, you know, how much of this can we attribute to women and people of color being paid less for the exact same work versus women and people of color working in jobs and industries that are not well compensated? So there are a lot of different drivers of gender and racial wage gaps. And the fact that women are overrepresented in low wage jobs, low paid jobs in certain sectors is certainly a big part of the story and what we call occupational segregation, women's concentration and the concentration of women of color in particular industries and men in other industries that are typically higher paying. So that's part of it. Um, but even when you adjust for occupation, industry, education, experience, there's still a large percentage of the gender wage gap that is unexplained. And even when you look at men and women working within particular occupations, there is still a gender wage gap. Um, so that leads us to what are the other reasons that could be driving this gender wage gap? Part of it is discrimination and bias. Some of it is overt. So you still have situations where employers will say to a woman, well, you don't need to be paid as much as your male coworker for this same job because you're married. You have a husband who's the breadwinner. You're just doing this you know, for extra money or spending money. Um, then there's also sort of implicit or unconscious bias about women, about people of color, their commitment, their capability, their leadership um, potential. And then there's also stereotypes and particularly about women and people of color and about, you know, whether they're leaders like Asian women are often thought of as, you know, too submissive or too quiet to be leaders. Um, or there are a lot of stereotypes and, and bias against women who are caregivers, who are mothers. So a lot of questions about their commitment, their capabilities for the job, you know, assumptions that they won't want to work long hours or travel if we ever get to a, a place in the world where we can travel again for work. Um, so all those sorts of assumptions, biases, stereotypes impact employer decisions at many different points in employment, in recruitment, in hiring, performance evaluations, who gets a promotion, who gets access to the best clients, who gets access to leadership opportunities. And that also affects the gender pay gap. Because if you start out in a job and you're a woman or a person of color, a person with a disability, and because of bias or other reasons, your starting salary is less than your counterparts because of the way wage gaps increase and magnify over time, that, that gap becomes compounded. So every time there's a raise or a promotion um, or a bonus, that's all based on that initial salary. And it also affects retirement contributions. And um, women, you know, women, there are a lot of women who live in poverty when they're older, <clears throat> excuse me, as a result of the gender wage gap. 
You're hearing Maya Ragu, Director of Workplace Equality and Senior Counsel at the National Women's Law Center here on Where We Live as we talk about the wage gap uh, impacting women and people of color in our country. Still, you can join our conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. For some Connecticut context, uh, Madeline Granado, who is here from Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund, when we talk about uh, the pay gap uh, in Connecticut, what does it look like, Maddie? Uh, yeah, so, you know, to Maya's point, um, you know, the wage gap, or there's national numbers, but here in Connecticut, the gender wage gap is still really significant, um, especially, again, for women of color. Um, you know, women in Connecticut overall earn, on average, of 84 cents to every dollar paid to men. Um, but for Black women working full-time, it's 57 cents. For Latina women, it's 48 cents. Um, you know, and that and that really adds up over time, um, as Maya mentioned, with just, just these huge career losses that are really staggering to look at on paper. But when you think about the real life, you know, right, um, circumstances for women and their families, lost earnings due to the gender wage gap have very real consequences. Um, more than 170,000 family households in Connecticut are headed by women and depend on women's earnings to stay financially afloat. Um, nearly 50% of female-headed households in our state under age 65 live within this Alice threshold, right? With earnings above poverty level, but below what is needed needed to meet their family's basic needs, like healthcare, housing, childcare, transportation, et cetera. Um, as Maya mentioned, again, you know, the gender wage gap really worsens the impact um, for COVID-19 for women, um, especially women of color here in our state, because their families, right, depend on their income. Um, you know, research shows that here in Connecticut, um, women have felt the most severe impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, they have filed the majority of unemployment claims. Um, they've experienced, especially women of color, have experienced the highest um, income losses. And they're also overrepresented in jobs on the front lines of the crisis, um, but also in industries that are experiencing the highest rates of layoffs. Um, all of this together um, is expected to really worsen the gender and racial wage gaps in our state. Um, in the long term. So we really need to take action, you know, this year to, um, to, you know, right that wrong. And we'll be talking about some possible solutions coming up in, in just a few minutes. Uh, Maya, I wanted to go back to you because Maddie had mentioned when you see these statistics on paper, they're really staggering. When we see the number of women in the pandemic who have left the workforce, how many women are we talking about? We're talking about millions of women and actually, we had made so many gains over the last decades um, of women entering the labor force. And now what we're seeing is the low women's participation in the labor market is the lowest it's been since 1988. Um, Maddie mentioned that women have been particularly hit by job losses during the pandemic. And it's true because so many of them were working in frontline and essential industries and, have, and those who have been able to keep their jobs have continued working throughout the pandemic in person, you know? So we've seen massive job losses in industries like service industries and restaurant work in retail where women were nearly 50% of the workforce, but it um, sustained 50% more, oh, sorry, sustained almost 90% of the job losses in that industry over the last year. Um, you know, there are a lot of women who work in state and local government. That's another sector that sustained very high job losses over the last year, along with childcare and healthcare. 
Um, so that has contributed to economic insecurity for women and families. And it's also an issue that affects gender and racial wage gaps as these women think about trying to re-enter the workforce as well once um, the economy starts reopening and employers start rehiring. I'm looking at a report from your National Women's Law Center, Maya, that 2.3 million women uh, had left the workforce since February of 2020. So let's talk about some of the solutions uh, to help uh, confront this wage gap and and also uh, deal with these long time disparities. Uh, When we talk about salary in the workplace, there is this, you know, culture of secrecy, right? Like who gets paid what? And it depends on what sector you work in. Obviously, if you're a federal government employee, even uh, municipal or state government, uh, because of unions, there is uh, transparency there. But can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how companies are talking about pay transparency and how that could address some of what we've just outlined, Maya? Sure. So earlier we were talking about some of the the reasons for gender and racial wage gaps. Um, Once they're created, part of the problem is they are sustained and they can also often grow in the shadows because, as you mentioned, this this culture and in some cases an actual policy of pay secrecy in workplaces. And what I mean by that is pay disparities can be very hard to uncover and challenge because many workplaces, either by policy or you know, sort of strongly discourage workers from talking to each other about their pay or disclosing their pay with each other, um, or they might get penalized for it. So the fear of retaliation um, keeps people silent. It keeps them from sharing that information with each other and, and discovering that they might be paid less than a coworker during the same job. It discourages them from sharing that information with job seekers who want to join the company. Um, And what that means is that people often find out about pay disparities by accident, right? In the days in which a lot of people were still working in in an office together or in a workplace, you might overhear a conversation, you know, something, it might come up in a conversation, you might have seen a spreadsheet left on the copier. And that's how a lot of people found out because of pay secrecy. And that really plays into this information disparity. You know, employers really hold the cards and the information in the hiring process when it comes to pay and information about pay. They know what their budget is. They know the salary range they're willing to pay for a job. They know the benefits that are involved. Um, And they have a lot of bargaining power. When workers and job applicants don't have access to that information about pay or don't understand how pay is set within a company, that puts them at a real disadvantage when they go in. And it is a factor that contributes um, to widening gender and racial wage gaps Mm -hmm. over time. So the idea of increasing transparency around pay. So not only what is the salary for a job or the salary range for a job, but how is compensation set within a company? How does that work? Um, what is the salary range for the job above you? So that if you do work at a, at a company, you have some idea of what you're working towards. What are the criteria for getting raises and bonuses? You know, How do performance evaluations factor into getting higher salaries and promotions over time? These are all some of the issues that are coming up now as 
the issue of pay transparency, of greater worker access to information about pay and control over about how pay is used um, has become a very important issue over the last several years, not only to workers and job seekers, but also just sort of in the culture generally. This is an increasingly important issue for you know, younger people who are more open with each other about issues like pay, um, and talking to each other about it. And this is an important issue when they look for jobs. Um, they see pay equity and transparency as important corporate values. And it's an important issue for shareholders as well um, because it plays into the risk that um, of investing in a company if they are not in proactively engaged around equity and fairness. Uh, Maddie, here in Connecticut, uh, we have laws uh, or even bills that are continuing to be uh, proposed that try to chip away at pay secrecy. Can you talk about this? Uh, yeah, so I mean, we're proud here in Connecticut, Connecticut that in a lot of ways we've been um, a leader in pay equity. Um, we've taken several steps over the last few years to really combat the gender wage gap, um, you know, piece by piece. In 2015, for example, um, Connecticut passed legislation that prohibited pay secrecy in the workplace. Um, in 2018, we became one of just a handful of states to ban the use of salary history in the job application process, which we know is, is really important. Um, you know, in 2019, we passed one of the strongest paid family medical leave programs in the country, and we raised the minimum wage, which are two policies that really directly support women and again, chip away at that gender wage gap. Um, this session, lawmakers really have the opportunity to, you know, continue our leadership as a state um, in pay equity um, and take a really necessary step forward in our path to, to close the wage gap. Um, they, we have an opportunity to pass a law that would require employers um, to provide salary ranges um, for applicants, um, either upon request or, you know, when they're making an offer. Um, the bill also requires employers to provide existing workers um, salary range for their positions, either annually or again upon request. Um, we see this as a really important step again um, th this year. I, you know, steps to close the gender wage gap are more important now than ever. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, gender and racial wage gaps are expected to widen um, due to COVID-19 and its impact on women. Um, it makes the urgency to pass a bill this session, you know, even more important or even higher. Um, you know, without a doubt, we're in the process of recovery and rebuilding here in Connecticut. Um, and the bill that lawmakers are weighing this year is just really one proactive way to continue our state's leadership um, and provide women the tools, like, as Maya mentioned, to re-enter the workforce. You know, at this point in the pandemic, um, I think we all need to ask ourselves, uh, you know, what are we doing to reverse the damage that, that COVID-19 has brought to women and their families? Um, how are we supporting women to go back to work? How are we ensuring that they won't be penalized, you know, for taking time off this past year um, to deal with elder care, child care, remote schooling issues? Um, so we just see, you know, passage of a bill this year is just really critical and just one small piece, right, of a, of a puzzle towards a longer term recovery in a more equitable state. Before we hear from a listener, just to clarify, Maddie, when you talk about banning pay secrecy, a law in place here in Connecticut that uh, means that employers can't retaliate against employees who share their salary. Yes, yes. Marge is calling in from Danbury. Marge, go ahead. Hi, uh, thank you. First of all, I agree with the 
the key points that have been made in the discussion. I wanted to add to the discussion. Um, you know, we talk about women and uh, pay and identity within women of different groups, but one of the topics that's not being talked about that I really wanted to put on your and the listeners' radar is women of age, so women in their mid-50s, later 50s, and really the the challenge becomes exponentially worse, and I can speak from personal experience. I um, worked very hard throughout my career and was able to achieve a very a fairly high level of professional success. Um, through that period, I did face a lot of the challenges that are being talked about in terms of pay differences and so forth, but nonetheless pushed through that. In my 50s, I uh, lost the position, and um, um, despite despite the fact that I'm still very competent, still very, um, you know, energetic, still very capable, I have not been able to replace that position, and that's despite the fact that the position was lost through no fault of my own, and adding that that's despite the fact that I've applied over 400 jobs. And this is over a period of, it's not a COVID impact thing, this happened three years ago, so I now work at about a third of the salary that I was previously earning. So nobody's really talking about how discriminated against are when they're older, let alone when they're early in career or mid-career. So I just wanted to add that to the discussion. Thank you, Marge, for calling in. Maya, would you like to respond? Yes. Thanks so much for raising that, Marge. And you're absolutely right that even before the pandemic, discrimination and bias against older women was a huge issue um, in workplaces. You know, either women being um, not offered leadership opportunities as they became more seasoned and experienced for various issues or and that in combination with the fact that as women enter their 30s and 40s, they're more likely to start having families or be caregivers and sort of the stereotypes and bias that they may face then. I think now those problems have been compounded because of the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of women, including more seasoned, experienced women, lost their jobs and now are facing some increased barriers that might widen wage gaps as, as people try to re-enter the workforce. So we have a labor market where some jobs are just gonna permanently disappear, right? Because of the pandemic, particularly in industries that are public facing or require interaction with the public. Um, there's a loss of seniority um, as women who were forced out of jobs or lost jobs. Um, have been out of the workplace for a long time. And so they've lost that seniority. And as Maddie mentioned, they're going to have to explain periods of unemployment, whether that was due to job loss or caregiving or other responsibilities. Um, in order to re-enter the workforce, women are more likely to need access to affordable child and elder care and greater sort of flexibility, maybe new training. These are all issues I think that are, are compounded for for women, older women, women, people with disabilities who are less likely and people of color who are less likely to have sort of these huge networks um, in certain sectors that would allow them to get back in quickly and are more likely to face questions about periods out of the workplace. Um, and, you know, Maddie mentioned earlier this issue of being employed Banning employers' reliance on 
salary history to set your new salary. And it comes into play in this particular situation because if you're a woman who took time out of the workforce for caregiving or, you know, lost your job during the pandemic, and you're trying to re-enter, you know, as Marge said, if you had to take another job for a lower salary, and now you're trying to re-enter the workforce and employers are looking at that lower salary to set your new salary, that's going to create a huge disparity that's also going to affect you going forward and affect your mm-hmm. retirement security as well. You're hearing uh, Maya Ragu, Director of Workplace Equality and Senior Counsel at the National Women's Law Center, as we talk about the gender wage gap in our country. Also with us, Madeline Granado, Policy Director at the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I just wanted to add, before we head to break, if you believe you are the victim of illegal employment discrimination in our state, you can file a complaint with the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Here's the number 860-541-3400. We'll also be sure to tweet that out at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Equal pay and salary transparency are two things that could help women in the workplace if and when they return. We're talking about this today with my guests, Myra Gu, Director of Workplace Equality and Senior Counsel at the National Women's Law Center. Also with us, Madeline Granado, Policy Director at the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. I'm Maddie, I wanted to, to start with you here because when we talk about the, the pay gap, it's been getting a lot more attention and we hear some suggestions, well, if we if women want to be paid more and paid equal to their male counterparts, that they have to focus on their behavior. Sheryl uh, Sandberg, lean in message. Women need to be more aggressive in negotiations. Is this the effective way to address what we're talking about today? Um, yeah, thank, thank you for that question. I, I, I do this, I, you know, I want to point out that sometimes wage discrimination takes on a more subtle form, right, than just this deliberate, blatant attempt to sabotage a woman's earnings. Um, you know, women are often viewed less likable when they negotiate their salaries. They're also less likely than men, you know, to get what they want when they ask for a raise. You know, re- research confirms this. Um, so as much as we can encourage women to, you know, lean in and, you know, give them the tools to negotiate their salaries, we do have to factor in that there are, um, you know, systemic issues at play, right? Um, in terms of, you know, stereotypes and bias just, just against women um, and how we're expected to behave. Um, so that's why, you know, legislation um, that really requires employers to be more transparent about their pay practices is so important, you know, along with, you know, negotiating tools and, um, you know, trainings and, and everything that's out there that's also really important, but these things need to work together. Um, and we, we really can't discount the, the fact that there are really systemic sexism and racism that comes into play when when women and, and people of color are in the workforce and, um, you know, negotiating their salaries. Mm-hmm. Emily's calling in from Bristol. Emily, uh, please tell us what you wanted to share. 
Hi. Um, I'm a- so, yes, I'm just going under an overpass. Um, so <laughs> I am a science teacher, um, and I was working at a boarding school in the math science department as a full-time educator. And um, when I was offered the position, um, I was offered a job, the job at um, significantly thousands upon thousands of dollars less than one of my co-workers in the department with a very similar um, course load, and I actually had more teaching experience than he did. Um, when I went to HR to talk about it, um, the hiring director told me that it was none of my business what he was making, and he really shamed me for it. Um, and the, uh, the really ridiculous part of it the other teacher, the math teacher with a higher salary, was my husband. So okay. I really should know what he's making. <laughs> wow. Right? <laughs> it was just wild. And I, I kind of sat and looked at the guy. And was like, no. No, that's not how this is going to work. <laughs> and um, they did adjust my salary a bit. Um, but I had to go over his head to the headmaster and um, I definitely, there were definitely repercussions for uh, standing up for myself, Um, pretty long lasting. And I am no longer working at that place and neither is my husband. It just, yeah, not, not cool. Well, thank you, Emily, for sharing that. And I hope you're at a better place now, you and your husband. Uh, Maya Ragu, I wanted you to respond to what Emily shared. And does this, this message from employers that's not your business, what other counterparts are making, kind of speaks to that asymmetry of the fact that employers have that information and how it can help employees negotiate better or to start at a, at a fair wage? Yeah, thank you, Emily, for sharing that. And I think... There's two points that I want to make. Sort of one is it goes to the point that Madeline was talking about a minute ago, which is that we're putting the burden on workers to uncover these pay disparities and risk their jobs to come forward to to challenge it and address it and ask for an explanation and for for it to be redressed, right? And you see that with with what Emily was just saying that she uncovered the disparities, she went to HR, and then when she tried to ask them to explain it, she was told that's none of your business and got a lot of pushback. And she had to make the extra effort um, to go above and try to get it addressed. And so it's the same with talking about negotiations training. Like the answer, women can't negotiate themselves out of the gender wage gap. There are just too many other factors at issue and, and it shouldn't be on employees only to try to address this issue. The other thing I was going to say is that, again, I think Emily's story illustrates that pay secrecy is bad for business. That experience seemed to leave her with, you know, sort of unpleasant feelings towards that workplace and that employer. And that's the case for a lot of people. Pay secrecy, you know, causes people to feel like their employer is hiding something, whether that is the case or not. And it breeds mistrust of management and, you know, it's bad for morale and it discourages people and many people may leave if they feel like they're not being paid fairly and they'll go somewhere else. So it's really in employers' interest 
to be more transparent about pay and how pay is set. It helps attract the best talent. It helps attract and retain diverse talent. It can be good for productivity, which obviously is good for the bottom line. Um, and it takes away some of the burden that is on heavily on employees right now and on job seekers to, to, to get beyond this whole pay secrecy and this information asymmetry. So it really is important working towards fairness for employers to be taking these proactive steps. And, you know, it's great that, st that states like Connecticut and many, many other states around the country are taking steps to increase pay transparency. And, you know, now it's in the hands of the Senate, whether the Paycheck Fairness Act will be passed so that there are protections at the federal level. But in the meantime, employers don't have to wait they can start conducting pay equity audits and being transparent with their employees about the results and what they're doing to take steps to correct them. They can share information with their employees about how they set compensation and what the criteria are for being promoted and getting raises and bonuses. They can stop relying on salary history to set salary or letting negotiation drive um, salary setting in hiring. So there are, you know, there are a number of things that, that we can be doing right now, in addition to the other policy changes that Maddie mentioned earlier, like raising the federal minimum wage and ensuring sort of universal access to affordable childcare and other types of care as well. This has been an interesting conversation. Maya Ragu, thank you for laying that out uh, for us about uh, ways uh, employers in our country can work towards uh, equity in terms of being transparent with salaries. And we appreciate your time. Maya, Director of Workplace Equality and Senior Counsel at the National Women's Law Center. Thanks, Maya. Thank you. Also with us today is Madeline Granado, Policy Director at the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund. About a month and a couple of weeks to go before latest legislative session ends, so we'll, we'll see uh, what happens with uh, these latest bills uh, to help with uh, workers' rights. Uh, Madeline, thank you for your time today. Thank you. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And coming up, we're going to talk about how this conversation is playing out in public media. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Connecticut's current unemployment rate is over 8%. That's more than double the unemployment rate pre-pandemic. The job market is picking up for some. Why are some businesses having a hard time hiring? Tomorrow we talk with some Connecticut employers, and you can join that conversation too. Now, we've been talking about wage gaps in our country and how policies that promote salary transparency can help address pay disparities that have long impacted women and people of color. Now, these discussions are happening in public media, too. And to be fully transparent here at Connecticut Public, staff have also been talking about pay equity and transparency in our organization. And there is a staff-led effort for voluntary salary disclosure, which almost one-third of Connecticut Public staff have participated in so far. But we wanted to talk more about why these conversations have been happening in public media and some actions that member stations have taken. So Joining us now on the phone is Tyler Falk, a reporter covering public radio for Current. That's an independent trade publication that covers public media. Tyler, welcome to the show. 
Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me. We've seen a, a lot of conversations and some changes uh, since the the death, uh, the murder of George Floyd last summer. Uh, institutions and, and organizations are taking a, a closer look at what they may intentionally or unintentionally be contributing to when we talk about systemic racism and inequality. But how is this conversation playing out in public media? Yeah, so, so pay equity and transparency is an issue that's come up and as part of a broader discussion about um, diversity and equity and inclusion within public radio. Um, last year, there were numerous employees uh, in public media who either work in the industry or, or formerly worked in the industry who were writing letters or, or posting online, posting on social media, kind of sharing their experiences of racism that they encountered in the industry. And then out of that, there were two groups that were created by people of color who were also either current or former employees in public media who were kind of pushing for some of these broader changes within the public media system. Um, one of those groups was called Public Media for All. And so they're, they were really calling on stations and also some of these national organizations like NPR to make specific changes focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of their 11 action items was focused on pay equity in particular. Um, they were saying that, um, you know, it, it wasn't their, their, their only item. There was, there was 11, but one of those was, was pay equity. And so they were really looking to ensure that um, people in the, in the industry were compensated fairly and without racial and gender bias. Um, so, so those aren't, weren't, weren't, aren't binding. A station doesn't have to do that, but they are committing to do at least 10 of the 11 items in, in a three-year period. Mm-hmm. Now, another uh, group that, that got together kind of in the last year, um, they, they are called Public Media Anti-Racist Partnership. And so this group got together and wrote an open letter to public media and and calling on stations to really um, be more transparent about pay and and calling on all stations to post those salary ranges and to have a more standardized organizational structure so that you know um, which which positions are available to to move into um, and so to to kind of um, Basically, they were they were looking for these changes to to make career paths more viable and, and more equitable, um, with the idea being that for for public media organizations they can recruit and retain diverse candidates. And what has been the buy-in from leadership at public radio stations? And this might be kind of insider baseball, but some public radio stations and public TV stations are affiliated with universities. And so there is salary transparency there, but not at all places. And I'm wondering how leadership has responded to these calls. Yeah, yeah, there there has been, uh, for, for example, that public media for all group, there were about... 20 stations and organizations, about two dozen that were had committed to that, including NPR. Um, and, and so, so they, they, they are, you know, saying that they will do make some of these steps and, and putting out statements kind of responding to some of the critiques. Um, NPR in particular has um, the, the new CEO in 2019 has come out and said, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a top priority, and kind of made that a central piece of their their um, 
um, part of their, their, their efforts and strategy going forward. So there has been um, some, but, but, you know, when we talk about pay transparency, um, we have, we actually host a, a job website called publicmediajobs.org. And, and as far as transparency goes, we, we don't always see those, those job numbers and job salary ranges posted. I, I was just looking today and saw maybe one or two out of the numerous jobs that are currently posted. And why is that? Is there this culture in public media that, especially for nonprofits, that they can get away with paying these producers and reporters uh, so little when you look at the cost of living in different parts of our country, Tyler? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And, um, you know, that, that's come up with issues around um, with, with NPR about temporary workers and, and workers who, you know, get kind of entry level producers and um you know people who are are making less money um not just at NPR but at other stations um and that's been something that actually some of these groups have have called called these organizations out on um the the anti-racism group I was I was mentioning earlier said that it disempowered staff and and disproportionately affected people of color in particular um, you know, these are people who are on short-term contracts, have fewer protections. Um, and so, so yeah, so, so Public Media for All, the other group was calling on a review of temporary worker policies and, and calling them to, to make, make some of these changes. You're hearing Tyler Falk here on Where We Live. He's a reporter covering public radio, public media for Current. That's an independent publication that covers public media across our country. Now, we know that some uh, member stations, the solution for them to not only have more pay transparency, but feel like they're they're more part of the company in the direction that uh, their station is taking, some of them have chosen to unionize. How has that played out? Yeah, that's definitely um, something that we've seen a lot more of in, in recent years. Um, definitely been a, a, a an increase in unions in public radio, particularly with newsroom employees. So these are reporters, producers, hosts. Um, and that's been important in particular because pay equity and for, for pay equity and transparency, because during bargaining, those workers can actually gain gain access to that salary data. Um, and so, so within the last year, even some of the larger newsrooms in the system, WAMU in Washington, D.C., um, WBGO in Newark, New Jersey, and actually numerous groups under the American public media umbrella. Um, this includes employees at, at the public radio program marketplace have all formed unions. Um, and so at, at Marketplace in particular, they, they formed the union in, in April. And when they were announcing their intent to form the union, they were specifically saying they were looking for an inclusive workplace where workers were compensated fairly and transparency. And that's been a common theme when we see workers unionize, is specifically looking for fair and and transparent salary ranges. Mm. Um that that's that's actually led to interesting discussions about pay equity and and critiques of executive compensation. Um, my colleague Julian Julian Wiley reported on Cascade Public Media. They're based in Seattle, and staff there had been criticizing the CEO's pay 
and saying that he had received a, a 16% increase while they were being offered a 1% increase in, in their negotiations. That was what they were saying. And, and one of the employees that, that Julian spoke to, a former employee for the station, said that pay equity was one of the reasons that she left. Um, now, we have seen some success um, in terms of kind of closing those pay gaps. Uh, I reported in, in 2019, I was looking more into to the, to the unions and why uh, staff were deciding to unionize. And at KUOW, also in Seattle, staff told me that they, they formed a union to close the pay gaps and then also to raise that floor um, of pay that, that, that employees were making to, just to, to offset some of those high prices in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were seeing pay as low as $38,000 in 2017 for some of those workers and gaps that were about $20,000. And so when they did get a contract, they said that they were able to raise those salaries as much as 20000 for some of those entry-level producers and reporters. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to put a, a finer point on in this conversation that we're having about why uh, public media newsrooms, uh, some uh, that have wanted to see more pay transparency and salaries that can help them in their profession. Because, you know, I've been working in public radio for, gosh, more than 20 years now, my first reporting gig, I made $24,000, $24,000. And when we talk about this, this greater need for journalism to grow and expand and the people that tell these stories and, and why it matters uh, to, to be able to recruit people from diverse backgrounds uh, to tell these stories, why it's important to have this kind of equity in our newsrooms, Tyler. And so I, I'm just wondering in our, in our couple of minutes uh, before we head to the end of the show, you know, the current has uh, been doing pay surveys among public media professionals. Do you anticipate this movement growing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's exactly what we're what we're kind of trying to work on now. Is we we did a salary survey of of professionals in the in the system um, about. 2,000 or so people responded. So we're, we're working on actually building that a, a database so that people in the industry can, you know, if they're moving jobs, they can see how much somebody, you know, at your station is making or, or a station across the country, how, how much they're making and, and get a, an idea before they apply of whether it's a good fit and, um, yeah, and, and have some of that transparency that, that, that people are calling for. Mm. Well, this has been really interesting to hear how this movement is growing in public media. We know our listeners appreciate uh, public radio and the content that we produce. And so it's important to talk and maybe lift the curtain a little bit about how these conversations are happening in our shops as well. Tyler Falk, thank you so much from The Current. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. On the phones today was Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can also listen to Where We Live anytime, not just live. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Be back tomorrow.